Well, Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. On today's episode, we discuss the influence of AFRL technologies, aerospike engines, and what makes Southern California's testing culture so unique. In three, two, one. Neil Sedano, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how you doing? Doing pretty good. For our listeners, Nils is a technical advisor for our liquid engines branch in our rocket propulsion division of the Air Force Research Laboratory. But really, Nils's claim to fame is really being a part-time historian for 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 the lab. Given that, Nils, we'd we'd like to play a little game where we kind of test your history chops. You, you ready to play? <laughs> sure, Michelle. Shoot. Basically, we're going to throw out some space-related, rocket-related technologies, and we want to see if we can find one where you can't draw the connection to the laboratory. We're all pretty familiar with the Apollo program. If you all haven't listened to our episode with an astronaut that walked on the moon, I suggest you check that one out. But, Niels, what can you tell us about the F-1 rocket engine? Well, the F-1 was uh, actually very tied to the AFRL rocket lab. We have such a very close history to it. Uh, not only did we test the F-1 out at the, the lab, um, we actually we tested a lot of it, actually. During the peak of the uh, main uh, development for the F-1, we had five qualification test stands going for full engine testing with uh, additionally with the uh, with an additional component test stand. So you could say the F-1 was developed at Edwards, and we blew up lots and lots of them. One of them took out a stand too. And one of our best claim to fame was actually that the, a lot of the combustion instability that plagued the F1 uh, and almost uh, you know didn't allow the Saturn V to succeed was resolved um, out at the lab. At the time, there was a lot of, of a, a worry that the combustion stability of the engine injector would not uh, be resolved, and it was on our test stand 2A out at the lab that the contractor was able to find the right solution and we were able to test it and, and see that it worked. And hence from there, uh, the F1 actually seemed to find its stride. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the test stand because I was going to say we got to do some cool filming of test stands out at Edwards, a lot of historic test stands. So you said 2A, is that still standing? You can still visit that? Oh yeah. In fact, uh, it's uh, it's really hot and heavy. Um, I, I joke, uh, you know, it's been uh, it's been in operation or in active campaign test campaigns almost well before I came to the lab actually since the early 2000s, and there hasn't really been a gap since, and doesn't look to be a gap in the in the near out years. So it's actually gone through many many upgrades, and it's continuing to increase its capability and doing more stuff like we did in the F1 and big rocket engine component stuff. I mean, it really goes to show just how uh, long the work we've been doing from AFRL's perspective to Edwards Air Force Base to really just rocketry, uh, which ties me to the next technology. So this one, I have some suspicions we may be involved, but I'm not sure. So the space shuttle program, did AFRL have anything to do with that? Oh, yeah. Uh, in many, many ways. I mean, I'll, I'll specifically tie to the uh, rocket engine side and rocket motor side, obviously, since kind of our our, our bread and butter out at, uh, at Edwards. I mean, you could actually argue that stuff for the shuttle was done all over AFRL, but uh, just on the rocket uh, side, the space shuttle main engines are work on a cycle called a fuel-rich stage combustion. Uh, incredibly high performance, uh, very compact packaging, 
extremely, extremely high performance. Those engines were an evolution of an AFRL uh, engine called the XLR129, which was the first demonstrator of that cycle. You know, I've spoken with a lot of the folks uh, way back when, uh, the, the old Pratt & Whitney folks, Rocketdyne folks that, you know, run those programs. And there's really a lot of interesting stories of why NASA picked up that technology. And uh, honestly, you could argue that NASA would not have picked up the technology to use in the Space Shuttle main engine if AFRL hadn't proven it out to say, hey, this works. Because it's such high performance, such high pressures that there was a lot of questions whether it could actually work and be made to work um, to the extent that uh, not only did we prove out the technology you know work out the r d we even loaned out the residual hardware to contractors to facilitate the space shuttle main engine component testing so for example uh, a lot of the uh, you know turbo pump that was worked on xr 129 was loaned out to nasa and the contractor at the time rocketdyne to help accelerate the thrust chamber testing. So they, while they were working the pumps on one side, they were able to work out the thrust chamber by borrowing our hardware. But So it's one of the perfect uh, transitions of it, but not a lot of people know about the XLR-129, but it was a great program. And uh, that's just one on the, on the liquid side. Then on the solid side, you could argue the, uh, the uh, strap-on boosters that the Space Shuttle has bear their heritage to a lot of the DOD work on uh, segmented solids solids got bigger and bigger, uh, it was getting a little problematic to make a case that was large enough in one single piece. And the Air Force Research Lab worked heavily on trying to figure out how do you create a seal, create a joint, you know, be able to set, pour these solids in different segments, have the insulation separate and protect the gap, etc., which eventually led to being able to make huge, huge solids like the space shuttle strap-ons. Well, we didn't stump you on that one. <laughs> Clearly, AFRL had its role in the space shuttle program. Now, a little bit, you know, to a more modern day. What about SpaceX, like the Falcon Heavy and Crew Dragon? You, know, you could say, uh, especially a lot of the stuff with the more recent times. And uh, often, I, I kind of think back in the SpaceX, and not not the new kid on the block anymore. They're twenty years old now. <laughs> but even before then, you know, we've, we've been working a lot of the work uh, that they've been doing. Like for example, a lot of the vertical takeoff and vertical landing, we uh, we we helped out through our engineers and program called DCX, which is a DoD program and kind of worked out a lot of the vertical landing, uh, vertical takeoff, vertical landing and stuff with rocket engines uh, way back when in the 90s. Then obviously I think the claim to fame right now with SpaceX in particular is the fact that the Raptor engine is a wonderful piece of engineering that was facilitated by a previous program demonstrating the, fun the technology itself at full scale. And that program was called Integrated Powerhead Demonstrator. So Raptor, as you might know, uh, runs on a full flow stage combustion compared to some of the fuel-rich or oxygen-rich stage combustion engines. The Raptor is, is the first flight example of it for the U.S. And, and the IPD, the Air Force Research Lab program, was the first tech demonstrator. It wasn't a small scale by any means. It was a full-scale piece of hardware uh, where we actually tested the entire engine assembly, pumps, pre-burners, thrust chamber, etc. And it's actually a joint program with NASA as well. And the, uh, and, and the effort actually culminated in around 2006, full engine testing and everything. And at that point in time, SpaceX was barely uh, kind of growing and had its own vehicles. And it wasn't until several years later when they were looking around to make a more advanced, reusable, highly operable engine that the same technology came up. And uh, at that point, AFRL had a, a kind of 
closed up the program because it was over for a few years, but we still had the hardware, we still had the drawings, we still had the data, and we were able to uh, transfer all, uh, all that to SpaceX through uh, several mechanisms. And we were actually, I think one of the benefits was that SpaceX was able to, one, know that the technology would function, would work, as well as maybe get a few years ahead of their development um, to save cost, money, which to be honest is, is the benefit to the government. You know, SpaceX being able to do something quicker and cheaper means that the government is able to uh, obtain that cheaper and quicker. And, you know, you could argue uh, whatever the cost of the IFRL program, we probably got it uh, tenfold as far as the acquisition. So, you know, it's, uh, that's seeing itself right now. And Raptor is uh, now flying in uh, Starship. And uh, it's kind of exciting. Yeah, and I, I think that explains it well a little bit like why AFRL or the Air Force, the government invested, you know, the research and development of technology that we do at the lab. We're not in the, in the business of commercialization, but we need the United States and, and our partners to, to get there and, and we can help along the way. Absolutely, Michelle. I mean, that's, I think that's the core. I mean, it's hard sometimes because we often don't get the credit, but that's okay. Uh, we do it for other reasons. We do it because in the end, we know that uh, you know our our purpose for being is actually to create a larger capability so we stay ahead of our adversaries and competitors and so forth so if the us and the dod benefit from it i think april has done its job we don't need the credit <laughs> yeah no i mean like to uh, echo what michelle said there and really drive it home i mean to hear that we're able to help uh, cultivate this interest in industry and also the expertise the technology and like you said uh the means to do this in a much quicker way working with the experts in the field it really goes to show how unique afrl is to answer a lot of these needs especially in the realm of space so uh being that one lab with two surfaces it's amazing that we can help the space force and the air force complete stuff like this so glad to hear that even going from you know back the f1 project all the way till now with plenty of stuff in between uh we're doing a lot of cool stuff work with pretty neat folks yeah well and ken and and he goes like you know as you say we don't need the credit and we don't in a lot of ways but we want to tell your story we want to tell like air force's story afrl story because we want those bright scientists and engineers to to come work with us or whatever business professional you are because you're going to work on hard problems and kind of advance technology advance science even if it's not our nameplate on something when it's commercialized. And it's fun too, because I mean, I, I personally enjoy it. I mean, you, you, you work on stuff that you don't know where it's going to end up. Um, you don't know where it will succeed. You don't know if it's just gonna crash and burn. <laughs> but that's an element that's uh, kind of an exploratory element that I, that I think the government is, is still the, the only ones really doing it. Um, you know, the industry is really good at, at taking something that is that is in essence, you know, you know, it should work It's just how you execute it, but it's still very advanced. And, and they, they put it together and make it work. But the government is very much in that trying to find that trade space, you know, creating the canvas, like with with uh, Raptor, you know, Raptor is is flying today. It's something uh, amazing. But imagine the technology, the full flow station combustion technology was first thought of in, in the early 90s and the IPD program to demonstrate this at full scale started in the mid 90s and didn't uh, demonstrate until the mid 2000s. And then it wasn't really picked up until 2010s uh, where SpaceX picked it up. Um, so you look at that timeline and you imagine the engineers that were working on this back in the, in the 90s and so forth, could they imagine that there was going to be uh, Elon Musk coming in and picking up the technology? I mean, they've, they've never heard of him. They would have never heard of SpaceX. 
but you still work on the technology because there was a potential for it. I think imagine's a good word and maybe a good transition for us. Catching up to modern day, what do you do within our rocket propulsion division? What's the cool stuff you're working on? We're, we're still working on a lot of the propulsion side. Uh, a lot of our focus now are in those shorter term transitions. Um, so a big part of my job is actually looking and identifying a lot of the needs for uh, responsive launch, uh, seeing how quickly we can launch systems, seeing what are the operational steps. Where in the past, we often focused a lot on the, like, the specific components. We're starting to get into kind of what are the challenges for operations to create a new capability because you know it doesn't exist today. I mean, we 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 don't launch rockets quickly today. Uh, we want to in the future, and I think we're making great strides, and the industry is making great strides in that area. But there's still a lot of research to find the art of the possible, and to demonstrate that. So a big part of my job right now is is uh, uh, understanding those technologies, making the connections with industry, helping to in essence <laughs> roadmap uh, the path to create the uh, capability and technology to enable that. So uh, working with a lot of engineers, both in AFRL and in industry to try to do that. So I liked what you said with the find the art of the possible. And what I'm curious is you mentioned a few of the ways we're trying to be get better at uh, rapidly testing or at least putting out a lot of these uh, engines you mentioned, trying to kind of match what industry is doing to get them out there quicker so people can use these and get us up to the stars faster. So what is your team doing to help make that possible? Or what can we do to help make that possible? But I think a lot of it is, for us is how we approach the problem. Um, we approach the problem often uh, twofold. One is is uh, kind of increase our, our uh, understanding of the problem by having better models, for example, you know, uh, be able to do use our virtual tools. And we've been doing that for some time now. And, and then also uh, how we build things. Um, a big part of our portfolio right now is actually it incorporates additive manufacturing. That has, technology has allowed us to really start building stuff and building stuff faster. And then the cost of the part is a lot cheaper. And we're able to, you know, in essence, uh, uh, go back almost to the old days where we uh, build and bust. But now that that is not as expensive anymore because we're able to have that high tempo fabrication. So combine the increased iterations and design tools and higher fidelity design tools that we're able to use, you know, our virtual tools. And, increase, and then couple that with the increased uh, production rate and manufacturing capability uh, for these new manufacturing methods, you couple that together and you really are able to make some uh, serious order of magnitudes accelerations on, on, uh, on creating new propulsion systems, new development, you know, curtail the, the long development. I mean, our goal hopefully is to try to address the, the burden of the decade-long engine development program and be able to curtail that. And if we're able to cut it in half, I mean, that's great. If we're able to bring it down even lower, perfect. But uh, I think time is a big part of what our focus is, and development time is a big part of what our focus is. In. So to dive into something else your team's working on or researching the space around is the Aerospike engine, which isn't something new. I'll have to say, I don't really know much about an Aerospike engine. So Niels, could you give us a little, maybe Aerospike engine 101 and then dive into why the lab is spending time on this technology? Sure, sure, Michelle. I mean, the the uh, the, Aeros the aerospike engine has been around a long time. In and of itself, is is not all, you know something new per se, but you know one of the things that we found through the years is that the uh, the aerospike engine it provides some tangible performance benefit uh, for launch vehicles. Actually, you could think of it as a as an inside out engine 
where it uses the atmospheric pressure to change the size of the nozzle. As a rocket uh, ascends through the atmosphere, it's exposed to different kinds of uh, atmospheric pressure, you know, higher at sea level, you know, uh, lower in the high altitudes. So that atmospheric pressure creates the shape of the exhaust plume of the aerospike, in, in essence, to maintain an optimal condition for efficiency and performance. Uh, so you get a lot of benefits uh, compared to a regular rocket engine that uh, has a single size nozzle that is optimized for a certain altitude. But you know, obviously, as a rocket goes up to into space, it goes through many altitudes. So the aerospike is able to uh, self-modulate, you know, so to speak, to be able to maintain a higher performance. The aerospike has been around for some time, like I said, but it's mainly been tested at full scale, but maybe on the ground. It's been analyzed, and it's never flown. Also, the aerospike is usually a little heavier, more complex, harder to build. So you kind of roll that together, and, and you can see that you know over the last 40 years or so, the aerospikes never have been really you know, made it to the show. So what we're trying to do is address both the problems that it has and be able to leverage its benefits. Like, for example, uh, the problems that it had was how it was being built. It had many, many parts. So now we're able, able to employ additive manufacturing, uh, different ways of integration, different materials, etc., and be able to do a, a modular architecture where we're, in essence, using uh, smaller components that we're able to, in essence, build, i.e., Adelie manufacturing grow uh, and bring them together with minimal joints, welds, etc. And it's sort of a, kind of like a Lego rocket engine approach where we take small pieces and bring them together for to make up the entire engine. And that really addresses a lot of the manufacturing impediments. And then we can also use the aerospike's altitude compensation to get the performance benefits. So, you know, with that we're trying to solve the problem that held it back. And at the same time, we're trying to take advantage of the performance and finally trying to prove it out in, in flight. The Aerospike has been around for a long time and, and tested and on the ground and, and several engines built, but it's still too risky uh, for anybody to really to pick it up uh, until uh, somebody demonstrates it. And you have to demonstrate it in the right conditions, which for an Aerospike is in flight because we can't really replicate the... The, the, a rocket flying through, you know, into space uh, and uh, its overall performance until we actually do it. Uh, to you mentioned, like it's supposed to be more modular, easier to use. Would we want to give people the capability, to, like you said, grow these in house and be able to make some of these their own, so they can start using more like of these uh, aerospike engines uh, without us having to make it for them? Yeah, I mean, it's really the intent is to be able to just transfer that to industry. I mean, one of the aspects here in this kind of modular aerospike architecture is that it's adaptable, it's flexible, it's scalable. And again, it tries to address that uh, it takes a decade to make a rocket engine problem. If you have those components proved out in, an, in a single aerospike, um, you're at least further along and being able to increase, change something, add more components, etc. cetera. Uh, at least that's a hope. I mean, there's technical challenges with it. But the intent is that if you're able to kind of circumvent those by leveraging you know, those more mature components, you're able to, uh, instead of having 10 years to make a rocket engine, which is the norm nowadays, you can have a, you know, five, four, three or lower to, to make a, a new engine instead of starting from scratch. Now, do you promise that when you get one of these to fly, you're going to let us know so we can make a big splash about it, right? Oh, absolutely. We're, uh, we're very excited. We're progressing quite well. And uh, 
I would be remiss to say, and we'll be uh, doing several of the engine tests, or our contractors will be doing several of these engine tests pretty soon, actually. So uh, we're chugging along, still gearing up for flight. So we're, we're excited. So that's something that is interesting that I like the idea of uh, talking about a lot of the testing, the heritage, and the history we have, especially with what your team's been doing at Edwards. Um, I, I want to talk about the other part of your career real quick, the one about history, the love of it. So we were told that um, a lot of these like experiments, even stuff like, you know, the uh, rocket spike engine itself, things that have either been tested here, uh, conjectured, or have run through at some point, uh, you got to work on what was called the heritage room on site. So when you're working on this, can you kind of talk about what the heritage room is, really what it means for that uh, Edwards Air Force Base? And did you have any lessons learned or cool things you found out while helping set this up? Oh, yeah. Um... And like I said, this, this is a, the heritage room was actually my additional duty at the time when I was a, a younger. So the heritage room is actually a long tradition within the Air Force. Normal squadrons have a heritage room where they have their former commanders, you know, missions that they've flown, uh, paraphernalia about, you know, the airplanes they fly. And, and it's a, a place where the pilots or the crew, you know, kind of get together and bond uh, over the history of, of the squadron. Well, obviously, uh, you know, we are not a flying squadron. Uh, we're a research organization, and, and but we're still a military organization. So we have a lot of that military uh, uh, heritage as well uh, and, 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 and traditions. So one of them was to make a place where we're able to kind of exemplify our, our past, both from a you know, military impact standpoint, uh, but also have a place to hold some of these activities and promotion ceremonies, trainings, etc., similar to a traditional flying squadron heritage room. Uh, and for us, it was a place to also gather a lot of our test hardware uh, and, and show it off. For a long time, we're just squirreling away, but it, there's a lot of history to it. And for me, it's actually shown a, a lot of the different elements and I've learned a lot of the different uh, programs and technologies that we worked on in the course of time of, of kind of doing this, it's been funny how, uh, how often I, I, uh, I still continue to learn something new that we worked on because, oh, what's this piece of hardware? Like, oh, that's when we worked on laser repulsion. <laughs> like, oh, okay, I didn't know we did that. <laughs> Yeah, it really sounds like it is like almost the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but it's the six degrees of AFRL. Like everyone is like related to us at some point or some way. So it's always a, a degree of separation, if you will. And something that I'm curious about for the Heritage Room, uh, talking about some of these tests and even artifacts you have from them, how do you hone down like which ones to actively showcase? Is there a cycle? Because with how long your testing has been going on, that seems like an almost impossible task. The main criteria lately has been actually stuff that is of use for folks. I mean, we have recently had stuff that we roll into an exhibit in the Heritage Room because we were loaning it out to industry. They asked for it, so we loaned it out to industry. And then when it comes back, we're able to just put it in the Heritage Room after that. So uh, a lot of the stuff that we've selected to put in the Heritage Room has been because we had to dust it off and send it to industry uh, anyways uh so when it comes back we we go ahead and just you know put it in the for display that's cool i mean that makes sense too to have stuff that's actually making real actionable change that they're like hey we know you researched this mind if we check that out real quick and you're yeah. like oh no problem and then yeah it's got it's got a perfect home so that just shows that even a lot of the old products we're working on uh still have such value today uh which yeah. again the fact you can showcase that to folks who may not know that i mean that has to feel rewarding 
Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, there's examples uh, just even this year where we had hardware that we had to go and find and dig out and uh, ship over to NASA because they needed it critically for one of the programs. You know, we had it on display in the Heritage Room, and uh, for years, the program, uh, the hardware is, uh, I think, now 20 years old. <laughs> Thank goodness we had it in the Heritage Room. So I'm glad we got to dive into a lot of the history, the heritage, uh, you know, talking about aerospikes. I mean, we covered a lot of very interesting stuff today, but I've been seeing a central theme kind of pull through this. And that's that this almost a Southern California culture, as uh, we heard you put this to prior conversation, that there's something in the air, something about this creativity, this risk of like not risk aversion, but more like willing to take risks to get either, uh, you know, a certain issue, a certain technology or a certain idea through. So what makes Edwards Air Force Base such a unique place to have that kind of culture, those kind of people in the right place? Yeah, Ken, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's funny. It's like we're, we're, uh, we're in a very, uh, I would say, uh, remote location. And I think a lot of it to, to that point, I think, has, is the same as uh, the, the main base, uh, the flight test center of Edwards Air Force Base. You know, that culture exists there because they're, they're trying to, in, you know, for example, in the, in the old days, in the days of the right stuff and, and such, they... They were uh, taking a lot of risks and, and, and proving out a lot of things, find out whether it's possible. And I think that same philosophy or, or, or tendency is still is also on our side, on the rocket side, on the rocket lab side. And I think it's just Southern California, I think, has a, an interesting uh, culture where there's a, you know, OK, let's try this out. You know, it might work, might not work. Who knows? You know, uh, it's a bit of a Hail Mary. Let's find out. I don't know if you're wrong or if I'm right, but actually kind of putting things down and and proving it out. And hey, if they blow up, we learn something from it. And I think that's common. And you can, I mean, whether you want to make some allegory to the flight test center, make some, make a correlation to the industry, the types of industry in space, you know, uh, that are out here uh, and that are willing to take those risks. The AFRL Rock Lab out here also has that tendency, has embodied it. And honestly, I think you put it best. If we couldn't get away with that kind of stuff, or at least have the uh, idea to push it or try to make that test work, a lot of things may not have developed the way they did. Sometimes you need to shake things up a bit. And it really sounds like you guys in Southern California, that, that's part of the mantra, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, it's fun. Uh, I've, I've certainly had a, a few fun times uh, over the years to to blow some stuff up. And, uh, <laughs> and stuff that actually uh, I'm starting to see actually being... Uh, picked up and transitioned. So it's actually, uh, I've had a good time. <laughs> yeah. So blowing up in many ways. So I'm uh, glad to hear that you've had a chance to not only be part of that, but really make a huge difference. So uh, it was such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining us. And uh, maybe we'll hash out some more stories on a few Lab Bites or future episodes. Oh yeah. Even today, lots of stuff going on. And uh, you might see some of our hardware, you know, flying flying out in space and, and, and beyond uh, pretty soon. Stay tuned, folks. Until then. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.